Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. There are certain people in the Bible that we talk about all the time. We know their names, we know their stories, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul. These are guys that played a significant role in the work that God was doing to bring about the purpose of his glorious will. Well, today we start a new series. We spent the last three weeks studying through the book of Ephesians. Now we're doing a series called Unsung. We're not looking in this series at these big name people who you've heard so much about, but rather some smaller characters, people whose names you may have heard, but you're probably not as familiar with. See, if we seek to follow after Jesus and to faithfully live for him, we kind of have to understand how God works. God has all the power. God has all the authority. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He does not need your permission or approval. And yet all throughout history, God has worked in the lives of everyday, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But what tends to happen, because we as creation emphasize, as people we emphasize the created over the creator, we focus on the people. Look at the incredible faith that they had. Look at the works that they did. Look at all they achieved for the kingdom of God. And so we take these people, these men and women of faith who did great things for the kingdom of God. We put them up on a pedestal. We turn them into legends and we treat them like they have something that the rest of us don't. They're exceptional. They're special. I mean, look at what they did. And then we look at our own lives. And there's kind of two types of people here, right? There's the, the first type that sort of like sees themselves as the hero of every story. Like, oh, that's about David? That's me. I'm David. Oh, that's Shadrach, Meshach, I'm Shadrach, Meshach, I'm all three of them together. Like, and they just, you know, you always talk to them, you're like, how are you always the hero? Like, I'm pretty sure you're not the guy that's facing down Goliath. You're probably in the back going like, I hope he doesn't pick me. And so there's the people that kind of strut around like a peacock with this weird spiritual ego. But for the rest of us... <laughs> We see these guys and these incredible things that they did throughout history for the kingdom of God. And then we look at ourselves and we go, well, who am I? Well, what can I do? Right? I, I'm not special. I'm not great. I'm not the best or the smartest or the strongest. I don't know the Bible that well. I'm not really qualified. I feel super inadequate to do any of these things. I look at them and I'm like, I got nothing like that. I have nothing to be like them because they are special. But not me. Do you know what all these great heroes of the faith have in common? God didn't use them because they were special. They were special because God chose to use them. When we fail to understand who the source of their greatness is, what we end up doing is placing them on a pedestal and focusing on their greatness to justify our own lack of faithfulness. 
but they did what they did because they're great. And I'm just not like that. That's not me. I'm not changing the world. I'm not shaping nations. I'm not going to have this crazy impact like they did. That's just not me. And so we make the standard of their faithfulness, the standard of the work that they did, unattainable. Because we don't think that we could do something like that. Now listen, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that these people are not worthy of our honor and respect because they are. But it is important that we remember that they didn't do great things because they were great. They did great things because God did great things through them. And God doesn't change. What that means is when you go through and you read these stories in the Bible about the incredible things that have happened... The same God who parted seas, slayed giants, conquered kingdoms, delivered and provided for his people in a desert, and then delivered them into a promised land against all odds and hope, who calms storms, heals the sick, raises the dead, casts out demons, and defeats death himself, is alive and at work in us. And when we have access to that same God operating in that same power to do the same things that he has always done, not because we are great, but because he is great, and his greatness has lost none of its tenacity over history. When we align ourselves with God and seek to live our lives on mission for him, following him, and pursuing him, Ephesians 3.20 tells us that he can and will do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. What that means is that in your wildest dreams, at the very depths of your creativity, at the farthest reaches of your imagination, you cannot even begin to comprehend the work that God can and will do through his people. Not just back then. Today. Now. In you and through you. Because God doesn't change. And that same power is at work in us. He offers it to us. So you can sit here all day and say, hey, I'm not great. Cool. You don't have to be. I'm not special. Cool. You don't have to be. But Jesus is. And he is still working. Still bringing about the purpose of his glorious will. See, the thing that we have to understand, the most important truth, you want to write this down, underline it, the most important truth for us to understand in order to live faithfully to God is that God does not call the equipped. He equips those whom he has called. So church, if you wait until you feel ready, if you wait till you feel qualified or prepared or able to do something for God, you will never go. Because God is not going to equip you before you leave. He will equip you as you go. So say, okay, cool, but how do I know if I have this calling in my life? Because these people did some crazy special stuff. How do I know if I have this calling? Well, you know how we have like a spiritual gifts test? There's actually a test for this. It's a spiritual test. It's two questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you have a pulse? <laughs> if you can answer yes to both of those, congratulations. You've been called by God to live on mission for him. Yay! See, the calling of God is not for some small, spiritual, elite few people. It is for all who would follow after Jesus. And so the whole point of this series is by looking at some lesser-known characters, some people who didn't maybe radically reshape the entire world, we take the pressure and the weight of the results off of ourselves, and we see 
that the work of God is for all who would follow after Jesus. So first up in our series, Andrew. His name shows up 12 times in the gospel, almost all of them on lists of who the disciples were. So Andrew's like the guy, he's always in class, but he never talks, so you constantly forget that he's there. Okay? His name shows up three times in the gospels outside of basically just a list of being present. And even in those times, he gets lost in the text. So, first text about Andrew. It's John chapter 1, verse 36. I'm going to start in verse 35. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew is a fisherman from a little town called Bethsaida. He was originally a follower, a disciple of John the Baptist. When he's with John the Baptist, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. That catches Andrew's attention. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go see more about this guy. So he spends the day with Jesus. And after spending a day with Jesus, decides he's going to leave John the Baptist and follow after Jesus. And he becomes Jesus' first disciple. Okay, so when you think of the disciples, right, we tend to think of 12. There's actually concentric circles, right? You have a large group of 500, then a group of 72, then the main 12. And then within the main 12, there's a core group, an inner circle of three, sometimes four. These are Jesus' closest friends on earth, the inner circle. They got to see and hear things that even the other 12 didn't. The main three are Peter, James, and John. And then sometimes... Andrew's included on the list. So he's like inner circle adjacent. Uh, best way to think, like if you, like Andrew's the guy, like when you get married, right, and you've got your groomsman, he's like the guy, like he could be a groomsman or he might just be the head usher. I can't tell. So you got to make the decision as to where he falls based on how many girls are in the bridal party. It's like we got to balance it out. Like that's how you decide which circle he goes in. Look, don't judge me. I do a lot of weddings. All right. So he's just that guy. He's there. He's close to Jesus. He's one of his closest friends on earth. And he is sometimes even in the inner circle of Jesus. What's the first thing Andrew does? Verse 41. After he meets Jesus, he goes and gets his brother, Peter, and he brings him to Jesus. Peter immediately outshines Andrew as a much more visible player in the story of Scripture. But everything that Peter does, all that Peter achieves and accomplishes for the kingdom of God began because Andrew brought him to Jesus. And so you might say, like, look, I'm not, I'm not Peter. I'm not that wild, crazy guy that's going to give the good confession, that's going to build the, be the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. I'm not going to be this main focal leader of the church. Cool, you don't have to be. Maybe you're the guy that brings Peter to Jesus. 
Uh, look, I resonate a lot with Peter, not because of the, the great things he did, but because Peter's always saying something stupid. And I'm like, yeah, I live there, man. Like, he's like, you're talking about the guy at the transfiguration, right? Who Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus, and there's this great, glorious moment on a mountain. And he's like, I should probably talk now, huh? What do you think? I should say some words? No? Good? A, I'm glad I'm here, Jesus. And you're like, what are you doing, Peter? Just shut up. Like, that's, I'm like, I get that. That's my whole life. I mean, they're saying something somewhat insightful or I'm an idiot. Like, those are the two options. There's no in between. So, like, I get the Peter thing. But not all of us are Peter. Somebody, somebody brings Peter to Jesus. Think about, like, Billy Graham, right? A guy who influenced, it's estimated he influenced the lives of billions of people. Billions. You know somebody brought him to Jesus? You know his name? Oh. Mordecai Ham. Like, if you want to guarantee your child becomes a Southern Baptist preacher... Name him Mordecai. Nothing else he can do in his life, okay? So this guy who most of us haven't heard of is responsible for bringing the guy that everybody's heard of to Jesus. So maybe you're not Billy Graham, but maybe you're Mordecai. Okay? That's maybe not that name, though. All right. So we see John again, or we see Andrew again. I can't even remember the name of the guy because he so, you know, disappears. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea, which was the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, and the, the, Passover the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was, so, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and 5, 000, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world. <laughs> so Jesus sees all these people coming to hear him teach. And he goes, yo, Philip, how are we going to feed all these peeps? Because, you know, that's how Jesus talked. And Philip's like, dude, I have no idea. It would take so much money just to give everybody a little bite. It would take so much money. We don't have that kind of money. I have no idea what we're going to do. Right, we know this story. We love this story. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a little kid's sack lunch. Right? Because it says like bread and like fish. It's like, well, maybe it's a really big piece of bread. No, it's like a saltine cracker and a couple of sardines. This isn't even full lunch. This is snackables. Okay? So the kid comes with snackables. Jesus feeds. And we're talking, when it says 5,000, that's 5,000 men. They only counted the men. So this crowd is probably 15,000 plus people. Jesus feeds them all with this little sack lunch. Right? And then he tells the disciples, go gather the leftovers. Like, why in the world would you think there are leftovers? That wouldn't get past me. Like, cool, I'm gone. Nobody else gets anything. There's 15,000 other people. Somehow there's leftovers. And so they go around and they gather 12 baskets of leftovers. Okay? So just think. Remember, like, early on in school, 
right? When like math teachers tried to deceive you into thinking that math was useful and that you would ever do anything with it, so they put it into word problems. <laughs> Johnny has 12 pies. Johnny ate nine pies. What does Johnny have? Well, he's got three pies and type two diabetes. Like, <laughs> right? Like I'm not, math is not my thing. It's not my specialty at all. I don't understand what to do with it. I'm terrible at it, but I'm pretty sure the fundamental principle of subtraction is that the last number is supposed to be smaller than the first number. And so when you start with one little tiny thing and you end with 12 baskets, something weird has happened. Okay, so like if you give me a problem, go, hey, I had $50, I spent $30, how much do I have left? And I give you an answer that's bigger than 50, I'm going to go ahead and go back and check my work. Because that's weird. Right, this is like, as someone who loves food, this has got to be one of the coolest miracles in the Bible. Because it doesn't just say that they ate, it says they had their fill. 15,000 people stuffed themselves on a kid's sack lunch, and there's 12 Baskets of leftovers. And this story is so crazy. Did you forget for just a minute that we're talking about Andrew? Oh, yeah, that guy. Finding Andrew in the gospel is like a Bible version of Where's Waldo? Okay, you're like, look for the dude with the weird pinstripe peppermint shirt. Like, that is somewhere in there. You got to get a magnifying glass because he's really well hidden every time. Andrew's the guy that brings the kid to Jesus. That's it. That's what he contributes to the story. And lastly, we go to John chapter 12. Now, it's worth noting that all three of the times in which Andrew is mentioned are in the Gospel of John. John is also from Bethsaida. He writes his gospel considerably after the others were in circulation. And so I'm just kind of picturing like, look, I got to give a shout out to my fishing buddy, Andrew, because y'all just left him out of your version. So I'm going to put him in here real quick just so you know that he was actually there. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servants will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All right, so let's play Where's Waldo? Where's Andrew in the story? He's the guy that brings the Greeks to Jesus. Three times he shows up in the gospel. All three times he's doing the exact same thing. He's bringing someone to Jesus. Every time we see him. He says like nothing else. He does like nothing else. Every time Andrew shows up, his legacy, his reputation, what he is known for and remembered throughout history is the guy who's always bringing someone to Jesus. (sighs) Hard to imagine a better legacy than that. What if that was us? Church, this is why we exist. 
This is the purpose for which we were created. We were given a mission. Jesus, after he died on the cross and rose again to establish his authority, gives us one final command before he ascends to heaven. Also kind of a memorable thing to give some credibility to like, hey, go do this. What he tells us to do is go glorify him by making disciples of all nations, by sharing our faith and sharing the gospel with the world church. We have a mission. See, the book of Ephesians, when we looked at that, the main theme in the book of Ephesians is our identity. It's who you are in Christ. You're not your past. You're not your performance. You're not your job. You're not the sum of your parts. You are a child of God. That in Jesus, you are a new creation. In Jesus, you have a new identity. Because when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he rescued us from death and brought us into life, adopting us into the family of God and bringing us into the kingdom of God. But church, Jesus didn't just bring you into the kingdom of God so that you could sit around on the couch and watch football. Jesus brought you in so that he could send you out. Listen to me, church. Jesus doesn't just do a work in you. He wants to do a work through you. He wants to impact and transform your home, your workplace, your neighborhood, your school through you. And so from the very beginning, he gives us a mission. Go be like Andrew. Bring people to me. Make disciples for me. And church, it is time that we stop treating the Great Commission like it was the Great Suggestion. This is not a command for an elite few. This is not a command for those with a certain spiritual gift. This is a command for all who would follow after Jesus. And sharing your faith, right? Going and bringing people to Jesus. It doesn't have to be weird. Sometimes we make it, we're like, I don't know what to do, so I'll just do something weird, okay? So one of the things that happens, I love this, I go out and people will like walk up and they'll hand me a track. Like apparently something about my face says I need Jesus. I get that. Uh, so here's one of my favorite ones. It's a, hundred, it's, a, it's a $1 million bill. And so the opening is simple, right? It does all the work for you. Do you want a million dollars? A lot of people will be like, no, I make 12 bucks an hour at the gas station. I'm, I'm good. Like, no, it's a strong opener, right? You want a million dollars? Now let me ask you the million dollar question. Do you know Jesus? Right, the back of it's just the Romans road, just laid out for you. Theology's fine, it's just kind of weird. Because the thing for me is like, so you're opening to teaching me the truth of God is deception. Because I can tell you right now, this is not legal tender. You offered me a million dollars, I didn't get no million dollars. It's, got, it's not a president, it's got Santa on it. Why does a gospel track about Jesus have Santa on the front? I don't understand what is happening, okay? So, and plus, some random stranger hands this to me. I'm like, let me critique your, uh, your technique here, right? So you got... You got the, the gospel money, you get a guitar pick with like John 3.16, or like, hey, you like music? Pick Jesus. Boom, you're saved. <laughs> oh, you read books? I got a bookmark for you with the sinner's prayer. This can save your place, but only Jesus can save your soul. Boom, you're saved. <laughs> right? Like, you don't have, like, we do all these weird things. Like, there's legitimately a thing called an Evangicube to walk you through the plan of salvation using origami. You're like, why? Why does it look more complicated than people trying to understand the gospel is origami? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Sharing your faith doesn't have to look. Listen, I'll be really clear about this. It's not really my thing. I'm not a big fan of tracks. But if God uses it, he can use it. If he does use it, praise God and amen, okay? But we don't have to be weird when we share faith. Let me just do this for a second. Is anybody here because some random stranger walked up to you and put a track in your hand? You're like, now I love Jesus because of that. Anybody want to just... 
also like playing Where's Waldo. Look for a hand. Oh, yeah, they don't exist. Okay, so sharing your faith doesn't have to be weird. God's plan for the world to know him is not through a program. It's not through some weird evangelistic opener. It's through his people. Demonstrating the gospel with their lives and declaring the gospel with their lips. God's plan for the world to come to know him is through you and through me. When we live our lives for him because we know that he is greater. So we take the focus of our hearts off of ourselves and we place them on him. This church, Jesus didn't just save you from something, he saved you for something. He has a mission, he has a purpose for your life. And he wants to do great things through you as he has always done through his people when we were faithful to him. If you're a church person, you know we know the term that we use for this is evangelism. It's sharing your faith. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be this weird thing. There are three simple things that everybody can do to share their faith, that anyone can do. The first, the easiest, is just invitation. Right? And this is the best. This is a super biblical approach. All throughout the Gospels, you'll see this phrase, come and see. Right? So you go, I, you don't have to know the answers. You don't have to be an expert. Somebody goes, well, explain to me how the sovereignty of God fits with the depravity of man. and the pro-. You're Like, I don't know. You don't have to be able to answer that. Just like, hey, come and see. Check it out for yourself. Simple invitation. It's always going to be one of the most effective ways to bring people to Jesus. Let me just do this. How many of you are here because somebody invited you to an event, to church? Your journey with Jesus began with someone inviting you to something. Yeah. A lot more people involved in that. It's easy. It's simple. You take someone in your life, you build a relationship with them, and you say, hey, come to church, we'll go grab lunch every, afterwards, right? We'll start with the bread of life, then we'll go get bottomless breadsticks at Olive Garden. Okay? <laughs> Both places you're here, your family. It's the same thing. It's just a theme for the day. Nothing beats the power of simple invitation. Look, I, I grew up in church, okay? My, fam- my parents, super Christians, they're wonderful people. They loved Jesus. They loved us. Church was what you did on Sunday morning. You were in sports, you didn't play on Sunday. Right? You went on vacation, you found a church to go to on Sunday. You're sick, you go to church. This was BC, right, before COVID. So you're sick, you go to church. Try to wake up with a fever. Well, that's just a sample of the fires of hell. I got a nosebleed. Well, Jesus bled for you first. I got a headache. Sin's the real headache. Jesus is the cure. Let's go. Right? When you got up on Sunday morning in the Edwards house, it was this. You were going to church or you're going to the hospital, and they better admit you for your own safety. You better be like not breathing. Okay? Sunday was for church. So I've heard a lot of sermons. I've been in a lot of Bible studies. I've been in a lot of youth group events and Sunday school events and all, everything that you can imagine. After all that, you know why I'm here? In high school, we were trying out a new church. My parents are mingling in the lobby. I'm sitting in a chair by myself looking awkward because I was really good at that in high school. Still pretty good at it. Um, this kid, random teenager, walks up to me, introduces himself and says, hey, we're having a youth event tonight. You want to come? That's it. Simple invitation. For the first time in a long time, I felt like somebody saw me. Somebody was interested in who I was, wanted to get to know me, spend time with me. That simple invitation is where my faith stopped being the faith of my parents and my journey with Jesus became my own. My journey in faith, along with most people, if you track it right, our journeys begin with invitation. 
And you don't have to know a whole lot to do that. The second thing that we can do is share your story. No one in this world is a greater expert on your life than you. You are the world's foremost leading expert on yourself. So you know your story, okay? It doesn't have to be some dramatic made-for-Hallmark movie, okay? Because your story is powerful. Your story is the story of death to life. Your story is the work of what God is doing in your heart, how God is moving, what he has done and changed in you. So all you need to effectively share the gospel with people is to tell people why you love Jesus and what he's done for you. Also, very biblical, John 9, Jesus heals a guy who was born blind. And the religious leaders, they don't like it because he did it on the Sabbath, so they're like, they're like interrogating the guy. They're like, how dare you get healed from your blindness? We're going to question you like an inquisition. And he's like, I don't know the answer to your questions because I didn't go to like rabbi school. I sat here and begged because I've never seen anything before. And so they're like, oh, well, we don't like that answer, so we're going to come back and question you again. And he goes, look, here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. Sounds like you guys want Jesus. Maybe you should go, I'll introduce you to him. Like, he's the greatest evangelist in the Bible. He kept it simple, right? This is what I know. This is my story. Your story has power. Share it. And lastly, just share your faith. Share the gospel. This is what the little evangelism tools are designed to do for you, as cheesy as they can be. It doesn't excuse, excuse us of our responsibility to be able to answer. First Peter 3 says, always be prepared to give an answer for when people ask you for the reason for the joy that is in you. What that means is that we must always be ready to share the gospel when the opportunity presents itself. It's not complicated. It's not scary. You don't have to walk them through some crazy systematic theology to get them to the place that you want them to come. It's three simple steps. Step one is the problem. We sin, right? Are you perfect? No. Have you lied, stolen, cheated? Yep, you're a, you sin, and therefore you're a sinner. And because we sin, we are not good enough to meet God's righteous standard, and we deserve because the penalty for all sin is death and eternal separation from God. So because you're not perfect, right? We're not, right? We're not messed up people in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. That's the problem. Here's the solution. Jesus we could not be good enough to meet God's standards, so Jesus met it for us. He came and he lived a perfect life. He took our, the penalty for our sin, the price of our sin, the weight of our imperfection. He took it upon himself. He paid our price so that through his death, we could have life. And three is the response. For all who believe in him. That is not believe that, it is belief in What's the difference? I believe that the sky is blue. I believe in Jesus. Believe that means nothing. Belief in changes everything. When you believe in Jesus, that what he did on the cross counts for you, covers you, and brings you to salvation. When you surrender yourself to him, what happens is you recognize that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your life. He's greater than your priorities. He's greater than anything that you could pursue or desire in this world. And when you see that Jesus is greater, it changes the focus of your life. You no longer sit in the center. You no longer put yourself on the throne. Your focus becomes about Jesus. And it sets you free from the 
burden of your circumstances and your struggles because your life is no longer about you. And in that freedom, you walk with Jesus. You surrender to Jesus. And you have a relationship with him as a child of God. One, two, three, you're done. It's that easy. We are all called to share the gospel. We are all called to live on mission for Jesus because God's plan to bring about the salvation of the world includes and involves you. For Jesus didn't just save you from something, he saves you for something. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. These are not meant to be judgmental. These are not meant to be critical. They're meant to be a wake-up call. When was the last time you invited someone in? When was the last time someone asked you about your faith because when they looked at your life, they could see that there was something different about you, that you lived, behaved, acted, talked differently, and they wanted to know what it was? When was the last time you brought someone to Jesus? Church, we have a mission. It's not to sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. It is to do the work of the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. And each and every one of us has a role to play in that mission. We have a kingdom calling in our lives. And Jesus not only calls you, but when you step out into it, he will equip you, he will empower you, he will enable you to do the work that he's called you to do. Church, you realize that the reason that Andrew brings people to Jesus all the time is not because he was obligated to do so. It's not because he took an evangelism course and says, this is the way to do it. It's because he knew who Jesus was. And back in John 1, when he goes to his brother Peter, he says, we have found the Messiah. Now, he didn't understand the fullness of the significance of that, but what he recognizes, we found the Messiah. Church, when you know that you have been saved, you will stop at nothing to tell the world about your Savior. We should all strive to be a little bit more like Andrew. Not to stand on a street corner with a bullhorn yelling, turn or burn, but to utilize the relationships, to leverage the people and the conversations we have in our lives to talk about Jesus. Because that's why we're here. That's the purpose of our existence. When we believe that Jesus is greater than all things, why wouldn't we want to share him? Church, good news is meant to be shared. The purpose and desire of good news is to be sure when something great happens to you, the first thing you do is you tell your friends and family, the people that are closest to you, but if, it's, if it, the news is good enough, right, you tell total strangers. Or if you have something really amazing happen, you're checking out at Publix. You're like, hey, cashier, guess what? And you start telling about this cool thing that happened, right? Because good news is meant to be shared. And what we have is the greatest news of all, that death is not the end, that we are not defined by our past and our problems, but that Jesus has set us free, that there is hope, there is joy, there is peace in this world that we can have through Jesus. So I want to challenge you to something. To take a step and to be a little bit more like Andrew, I want you to think of one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. One person. 
And I want you to start praying every day for that person. Write their name down, put it on your fridge, whatever you got to do, type it in your phone. Pray for them every day. Not just that they would come to Jesus, but that the Holy Spirit would create opportunities for you to open your mouth and share the gospel with them. That the Holy Spirit would give you courage and boldness to invite them in. That we, as the people of God, would declare the gospel with our lips and demonstrate the gospel with our lives. That perhaps one day, when the world looks at us, when our names are written and remembered in history, what they'll say about us is that all we really know is they were always bringing people to Jesus. There are two legacies in the Bible that I find the most compelling. The first is John's, right? The disciple who Jesus loved. Like, you don't beat that. Like, that's just, that, that wins all of them. Like, the only thing I want you to know about me is that Jesus loved me. Second only to that is Andrew's. Always brings someone to Jesus. You don't have to change the world. But every day you have the opportunity to change one person's entire world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give us. We praise you for all that you do. For the hope, the peace, and the joy that we have in you. God, I pray that we would live our lives with a passion and a zeal for your kingdom. That we would not just sit back and receive the gifts that you give, but that we would share them. That we would experience the fullness of them by not holding on to them for ourselves, but that we would be constantly pouring them out. That you would constantly have to pour more in, because you will not let us be empty. God, give us boldness. Give us courage. Bring to mind and bring opportunities for us to share with the world how great you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.